Amen. Hey, wherever wherever you are, let me go ahead and say happy quarantining to you. Uh, we're glad that you're here with us. We are actually week four in being a multi-site church. I don't know if any of you saw this coming, but here we are uh, due to the coronavirus. Um, and that, that being said, I'm going to say what may feel like a very shocking statement. Y'all, Easter is next week. I, I don't know uh, if you guys have caught on to that, but we have caught on to this. We've had a few distractions over the past several weeks, um, so I hope that didn't catch you too off guard. But knowing this, we're going to jump right in, and we're going to make a hard shift in the book of Mark today. Uh, we're going to jump to the end of the book and look at both the death and the resurrection of Jesus over the next two weeks. And we're going to pick back up in Mark 10 after Easter. Uh, for those that love theology, I'm using a common theological framework, or framework over the next two weeks uh, called the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. This week we're going to look specifically at the humiliation of Jesus in Mark 15. And then next week, we'll look at the exaltation of Jesus in Mark 16. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Uh, and while you're, while you're turning there, I want you to think back uh, to one of your more embarrassing moments in your life. You know, I've had a, I've had a fair share of those in my life, like, like tripping on stage, falling flat on my face, uh, a couple sports bloopers in my life. And you're saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Uh, a, couple, a couple months ago, I actually walked right into the gym, uh, and I had a lollipop stuck on my rear end. Uh, that was a sight to see for everybody. Um, it was a little embarrassing. Uh, you know, there's a few things that we can, we can brush off, we can get a giggle out of. Um, but some embarrassing moments uh, incite feeling of shame that are much harder to brush off, like, like being picked on and mocked. Some embarrassing moments are self-induced, doing silly things, uh, and some are induced by others, which are not so silly. You know, others may, others may think it's funny, but it's often at our expense or your expense inciting, inciting shame. And I bring this up as we look at a very familiar story in Mark 15 uh, of Jesus' death, knowing and being very aware that what we will talk about today cannot compare to anything that we have ever experienced. The shame that we have experienced cannot be compared to this, while at the same time, we can, be, we can find great comfort in knowing that it is, it is very relatable. The shame that we have felt that has been brought on to us, it is very relatable. Our Savior, our God, can, can, can relate with us. Because what's interesting in this story, specifically in Mark's account, is that Mark emphasizes Jesus' shame, not his pain. When we read through this story, something that I didn't expect uh, was to see very little of the painful agony uh, of Jesus, this, to see very little of the descriptive nature of his crucifixion. Mark's account of Jesus' Jesus' death. It doesn't, have, uh, it doesn't quite have the same descriptive nature that you would see in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, uh, seeing the whip whippings and the lashings and the beatings, emphasizing the torture that Jesus endured. Um, it's certainly mentioned, uh, but surprisingly, that's not what's emphasized here, no. Uh, rather, Mark decided to emphasize the shame of Jesus. And what's interesting to me, as we've been going through this story, each week uh, as we, you know, we see how Jesus was preparing his disciples, showing how he would be the suffering servant. But at the very end of the narrative here, we're kind of jumping to the end here, Mark didn't emphasize Jesus as a suffering, Mark didn't emphasize Jesus as a suffering servant the way I personally thought he would, and maybe the way you would think he would either, but yet he still emphasized him as a suffering servant, but he emphasized his emotional suffering, not his physical suffering. 
New City Church, I don't know what sort of emotional turmoil or challenges you are experiencing or have experienced or will experience, but I have no doubt in my mind that you uh, are probably like me in some sense. You've been on a roller coaster of emotions over the past several weeks. You've had a roller coaster of faith mixed with doubt and fear, encouragement and weariness and anger and boredom mixed with hope and joy. Sprinkled in with a little dash of the crazies, like getting a little stir crazy. But hear this, as we'll see through this story, Jesus cares, Jesus can relate, and Jesus can provide hope. And so as we walk in today's passage, fixing our eyes on the cross, uh, we're going to be reminded of our ultimate hope today. And as a side note, something I just want to point out as the Lord's kindness to us, I didn't plan it this way, I believe actually the Lord did this for us. Last week, we saw at the end of Mark 9, we saw that Jesus despises sin. It was a weighty text. Uh, and then today's word, it follows up last week really well because last week Jesus made a call for us to kill sin, to take drastic measures for our sin. And today we'll see that because we can't completely kill sin, Jesus in return was killed because we couldn't kill it. Jesus knows that sin must be dealt with. And today we're going to see Jesus deal with it head on. Today we'll see Jesus come in, and Jesus is actually going to clean up our mess. Jesus took the shame that we deserve, and that's our main idea today, that Jesus took our shame. And so on two sides, you know, following up from last week, there may be feelings of shame or guilt, a burden of your sin. And if that's you today, I pray that you would listen in. I believe God has a word for you today. I really do. And on the other side, maybe you've been calloused to your sin. You have, maybe you have no emotion to your sin. Maybe you don't think your sin is that bad. And if that's, if that's you, I pray that you would also listen in. Or maybe, which I bet is mo- like most of us, maybe there's a mixture of both. Some things in our life we're grieved over, and then some things in our life we're just calloused to. And so with our time today, we're going to read through our story much like a narrative. We're going, to, we're going to go through it like a story. And on the back end of our time, we're going to have a little bit, more, a little bit of application. Um, it is a well-known story, uh, but I believe time, in times like this, in a time of crisis, this story that we're going to see today, it points to our hope. Our hope is not in, in our health. Our hope is not in the stock market or finances. Our hope is not in staying busy. Our hope is found in heaven. Our hope is, is seeing, is in Christ, is Jesus, because Jesus is our hope. And this story, it refixes our eyes to the greatest hope that this world has to offer. Guys, this, this story, it's gripping, it's grueling, uh, but it is hopeful. There's much hope in our story today. Um, and to be candid with you, it may not feel very hopeful at first. In fact, it may feel morbid and agonizing and dark, uh, but there is hope on the horizon. Don't tune out because there is light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, Something we know as we look out into the world, especially in times of crisis, is that hope often shines much brighter amidst a backdrop of darkness. And so I'm going to first try to paint the backdrop of of darkness, and then we're going to get to our hope. And so knowing that, um, there are a few things that I could point out. There are a lot of things that we could point out in our story today. Um, But I want to emphasize and point out is Jesus' shame. We're going to look at his humiliation. That's our backdrop today. That's the backdrop of darkness that we're going to be in. And as we do this, we'll see that Jesus experienced shame. Jesus, number two, Jesus despised the shame. 
And then number three, Jesus endured the shame. Uh, if this language is familiar to you, it's actually, I'm drawing it out of Hebrews 12 too, uh, which says this, it says, you know, speaking of Jesus, it says, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so if you have your Bibles and you're, if you're not already there, turn with me to Mark chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 15. Our text today will begin right at the end of Jesus being put on trial with the Roman governor, the Pontius Pilate. Uh, and this is what it says, starting in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. If you're familiar with the story, um, it became custom during this time to release one prisoner during this specific time. And Pilate gave the crowd an option. Either one, either first, uh, either released Jesus, the man that claimed to be the king of the Jews, or released Barabbas, a violent rebel. That, that is, uh, this is rather an ironic scenario because Jesus, the righteous judge of the world, was being judged by the world. And the world judged him wrongly because it says they, re they released Barabbas. They released the violent rebel. They scourged Jesus, and then they, uh, they delivered him to be crucified. And this transaction that happened here, as Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, being substituted uh, for a violent rebel is a foretaste of the transaction that would be offered to the entire world. But before we get ahead of ourselves... I want us to think about these two phrases here and we see in verse 15. Uh, it says that they scourged Jesus. And it also says they delivered him to be crucified. This is about the extent of Mark's description of the pain, specifically the pain that Jesus went to, went to which is not to be ignored. This is significant. Mark, in Mark's audience, they knew this pain. They didn't, they didn't need the description because they were very aware of what this included because they knew what was going on. This happened often. And people, when people were scourged, it was done before their crucifixion. It was the precursor. And what they did in this scourging, what they had, they would take a wooden handle. And it was strips of leather coming out of it uh, with sharp spikes on the end uh, and bones attached. And what they would do, they would whip. They would whip the prisoner over and over again, tearing the skin, often pulling back the skin, weakening them, often having pools of blood, drawing pools of blood below them. Oftentimes, they were led to die before they were ever even crucified. But not Jesus. They stopped before his death because they didn't want to just kill Jesus. They wanted to shame and humiliate Jesus. And in the end of verse 15, it says, Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified, which means uh, Jesus would be sent to uh, the cross. He would be nailed to the cross as a criminal to suffer and die a slow, torturous death. <laughs> Instead of delivering Barabbas, a violent criminal, Pilate delivered a righteous, innocent, sinless man. And then we pick up in verse 16. And this is what it says. The soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him to be crucified. Think about this. 
Verse 16, it says, they led Jesus away to the governor's headquarters and called the whole battalion, which is about 600 men at full strength. That's about the same. Just to put that into perspective, that would be like six or seven college football teams surrounding just one man. And they began to mock Jesus, to salute him as king, although not believing he's the king. And the irony is continuing. And they're continuing to mock him. They put a purple cloak on him. And they crown him with thorns, saluting him as the king of the Jews. They're completely mocking his royalty, completely disregarding everything he had done up to this point, disregarding how he'd shown himself that he was truly the king of the Jews. In this moment, they are fully shaming Jesus, showing us our first point. Jesus experienced shame. I just imagine those 600 shoulders. Soldiers surrounding Jesus, laughing at him, picking on him, maybe even slapping and kicking him in complete shame. And in verse 19, it says they were striking his head with a reed, which again is one of the few descriptions that we have in Mark of the physical pain he experienced. And then it says they spat on him, they mocked him, and then they stripped him of his purple cloak. Again, the physical pain was terrible. We know this. It was grueling. It was torturous. It was bad. But, it's, but Mark is emphasizing Jesus was completely humiliated. And Mark continues this in verse 21. This is what it says. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. You see, what we need to understand in this moment was that Jesus was carrying his cross, a hundred pound wooden beam through a high traffic highway, someone like a parade was going on. All this was happening so his death could be put on display to a watching world as a warning to everyone who was watching, seeking to intimidate those who followed him, seeking to show the world that if you follow this man, you can experience the same, which draws our attention, if you remember back to chapter 8. This is where Jesus was preparing his disciples back in chapter 8. That they will need to pick up their cross and follow him. And here, in Mark chapter 15, we see the first literal example of that. Where Jesus could not physically carry his cross anymore. Again, it was a form of mockery showing his physical weakness to the world. And so the watching world, his followers, they see a picture of a man who is believed to be a follower of Jesus. Literally pick up Jesus' cross and follow him. Not only did the world humiliate and shame Jesus, but the world also humiliated and shamed his followers. They humiliated his disciples. Mark, in this moment, is painting a picture. He's giving a visible illustration of what it looks like to follow Jesus. That following Jesus does not always lead to easy roads, but it leads us to a cross. And as we'll see in a moment, the road to the cross is difficult, but glory is on the other side. Glory is on the other side. And then continuing in verse 22, it says, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. I want to slow down here. Uh, I want to point out a few things. In verse 23, Mark is beginning to draw our attention back to Old Testament language. He's painting a picture. He's making it clear that he's the Messiah. 
He's the long-awaited Savior. None of this was an accident, but it was known. It was prophesied, but this was happened long before any of this occurred. He was making it clear that it was not the Roman soldiers or Pilate that sent Jesus to the cross. It was not the crowd or the religious elite that sent Jesus to the cross. No, this was God's doing. This was an act of God. And as we'll see, we have a few more examples of this, drawing the reader back to the Old Testament. In verse 23, it says, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. This specific instance, drawing us back to the Old Testament, comes from King David in Psalm 69.21. Hundreds of years before this, it says in Psalm 69.21, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And then in verse 24 of Mark, in Mark chapter 15, they divided, it says they divided his clothes, casting lots for them. That specific instance is drawing back from Psalm 22.1. Again, from King David, that says, They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. And then again, in Psalm 22.16, it says, They pierced my hands and my feet, pointing to Jesus' crucifixion. Get this. For hundreds of years, they were looking for a king like David. And as we see here, Mark makes it clear, Jesus is that king. (laughs) And And then another interesting detail, just to point out. In verse 25 of Mark, it says, it was the third hour when they crucified him. And what's interesting here is that it seems, there seems to be more emphasis on the time than the fact that they crucified him. So we see here that Jesus was in broad daylight at 9 a.m. on a road right outside of the city, and quite possibly he was crucified naked. And it says they gambled for his clothes. They may, maybe, quite possibly, they may have left his loincloth. We don't know. But if they were mocking him this much, seeking to shame him, trying to take every bit of decency he has, it would not be surprising to me one bit if Jesus hung naked on a cross while having a sign hung over him, bleeding, skin ripped open, wearing a crown of thorns just to further his humiliation. And it doesn't stop. The mockery continues. Look at, look at verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him one to another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So here we see that Jesus is being looked upon in complete disdain. First, by those who just passed by them. It says they were wagging their heads and they were uh, mocking the bold claims that Jesus was making, completely disgracing Jesus. And then secondly, the second group, by the religious elite, the chief priests and the scribes, it says in verse 31, it says they mocked him one to another. You know, I just imagine them in this moment laughing and snickering uh, while they're throwing insults at Jesus, mocking the claims he made. And then third, it says down down in verse 31, it says, even the two robbers, even the two robbers that were crucified with him, it says, they mocked him and reviled him. I I hope by this point, our first point is very clear. 
Jesus experienced shame. Jesus was completely humiliated. And not only was he humiliated and shamed, but he despised it. Which leads us to our second point. Number two, Jesus despised the shame. And as I said earlier, I'm drawing this back from Hebrews 12 too, uh, where the author said specifically that Jesus despised the shame in Hebrews 12 too. Now I thought it was fitting here because as we just saw, uh, his shame was put on full display at his crucifixion. You know, as one pastor points out, uh, Pastor John Piper, as a reflection of how he despised his shame, this is what he says. Uh, he says, Jesus' friends shamefully abandoned him. Jesus' reputation was shamed and mocked. Jesus was put on display in shaming nakedness. His comfort was shamed to torture, and his dignity was undignified through his grunting and screeching cries on the cross. And in all of this, he despised it. He hated it. Jesus felt abandoned. He was left. He felt forsaken. And we know this, and we see this more fully in three very, very dark hours of Jesus' life. Look with me at verses 33 and 34. Mark continues and writes, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And when the ninth hour... And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Three hours of complete darkness in the middle of the day at 12 noon. And what's interesting is that this was prophesied actually earlier back in the Old Testament in Amos 8, in chapter 8, verse 9, that says, and on that day declares the Lord. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Guys, this was, a, this was an act of God. Y'all, this was not an eclipse. Eclipses don't last that long. This was an act of God. This is not, this is not a darkness of eulogy and mourning. No, this is a darkness of evil. Hovering over the earth, God in this moment is possibly, draw, quite possibly, drawing our attention back to the darkness over the face of the earth that was at creation. Because as we know, God created light, and he said that it was good. <laughs> because in the Bible, we know that darkness, it symbolizes evil. So in these dark hours, God was beginning to hint and show something, that he would begin to recreate something, that something new would come, but something else needed to happen first. Something much darker needed to happen than the darkness that was saw at creation. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being forsaken by God the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, in this moment, felt shamed and shunned by God the Father. In Jesus' darkest hour, quoting back from Psalm 22 that we referenced earlier, he says in verse 34, in his darkest hour, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus experienced shame, and he despised the shame. He hated it, because in that moment, when Jesus cried out to God, when he was forsaken to God, the sin and the shame of the world in that moment was on his shoulders, and it was despicable. Because we know, as we saw last week, that Jesus despised the sin, and he was covered in it. It was all over him. The greatest shame you've ever felt, he felt. The greatest darkness of your life you've ever experienced, he experienced. All the fear, all the worry, all the anger of the world was weighing on his soul. You know, we often bring up and talk about the pain of the cru crucifixion, the, the suffering and the torment you know, that the cross signifies. 
but greater than the lashings, the scourging, and the nails in his hands, the shame that he experienced because of your sin, the shame that he experienced because of my sin and the, and the world's sin that went on his soul, separating from him, from God the Father, that was far worse. The shame of the cross was far worse than the pain of the cross because Jesus, being isolated and separated from God the Father, was infinitely worse than anything, any physical pain he could endure. Because you see, Jesus could, not, Jesus could experience pain and he could not sin. But he couldn't go to the cross without the weight of our sin. He was able to endure the physical pain in love silently. But when the sin of the world came on his shoulders in the darkest hour, it led him to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus hung on the cross, he took the very sin that he despised, the sin that he wanted us to kill. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he took the shame of our sin. And we see this in verse 35. Starting in verse 35, it says, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, but on a reed, uh, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And there's a lot of Old Testament imagery here that we're not going to get in today. But I want to point out something in verse 36. You know, where there's a person that's coming in wondering, it says so, someone ran and filled. So we just there's a person that we don't know who it is came and filled, and they were wondering uh, if Jesus would come down from the cross, if Elijah, an Old Testament prophet, would come and rescue Jesus from his agony, rescue Jesus from his humiliation and suffering. And we see in the next verse, no, Elijah would not rescue him. Jesus did not need to be rescued, because if Jesus was rescued from the cross, he wouldn't be able to rescue us. Instead of being rescued from the cross, Jesus endured the cross. He endured it with the sin of the world on his shoulders, feeling the agony of being separated from God. If there was ever a time for Jesus to want to just give up and quit, this would have been that time. But no, no, Jesus knew what was on the other side. The love of Jesus left him hanging on the cross. He could have called Elijah. He could have called the angels. He could have used the power of God that helped him heal lepers, the blind, the sick, the deaf, the mute. The, the power of God that he had at his disposal that helped him, that let him raise someone from the dead. But that was not his plan because we know that Jesus was born to go to the cross. Jesus endured the cross. Not only did he endure the cross, but number three, we can see and we can rejoice because Jesus also endured the shame. Brothers and sisters, this is where the good news begins. Because we've seen the humiliation. We've seen the agony. We've seen the shame and the mockery. And today, we can rejoice because Jesus laid and he stayed on the cross. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus went to the cross. He stayed on the cross, was nailed to it, and died. And as it says in verse 37, he made a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And as I said, Jesus did not call Elijah or any of the angels to come off, to get him off the cross. No, Jesus, Jesus stayed hanging on the cross and breathed his last breath on the cross because he knew there was something greater on the other side. Jesus was not rescued from the cross because he wanted to rescue us from the cross. 
Jesus went to the cross, experienced the shame, despised the shame, and endured the same so we wouldn't have to. Jesus endured the cross through his power because he knew that we couldn't. The love of Jesus for a broken humanity was so great, it is so great, that he endured the shame of the cross for us. If you are listening in, if you are watching in, and under the sound of my voice, you feel the weight of your sin, you feel the shame of your sin, you know that Jesus despises sin and you're burdened by it and you feel shamed by it. Brothers and sisters, if that is you, I pray that you would hear this today, that if you are in Christ, you need to remember the shame has been taken off of you. The shame has been put on to Jesus. The guilt has been taken from you and it was placed on to Jesus. The, through the gospel, God is not ashamed of your sin because His Son was already shamed for our sin. I want this to be very, very clear for us today. Jesus went to the cross to take our shame. Just like Jesus was crucified instead of Barabbas, Jesus went to the cross taking on shame instead of us taking the shame. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was our substitute sacrifice. But something I want to make very clear today, that there's only one way to take the shame and sin off of us and to place it on Jesus, and it's through believing and trusting in Jesus. It's only through faith. I pray that if you have not trusted in Christ, that you would put your faith in Jesus, that you would take the shame off of yourself and you would place it on Jesus. But if you have trusted in Christ, and if you trust in Christ, you can rejoice that He has taken your shame. Jesus died for it, and He took it at the cross. We no longer need to carry the, the weight of our sin and shame because just like the man that carried Jesus' cross when He no longer could, Jesus carried the weight of our sin and shame to the cross for us. Brothers and sisters, that's good news. That is good news. Don't hold onto your sin and shame. Put it at the foot of the cross because he died for it. But I want to be very careful here because I know that there are others listening, maybe some who are watching that may not feel the weight of your sin. Maybe you're not shamed by it. It's very easy to become calloused by our sin, just to downplay the sin in our life, to think and believe, oh, I'm good. Uh, my sin was paid, and yet nothing changes. And that's, if that's you, I pray that you too would listen in. I know that in some way that this is a struggle for everyone uh, in certain areas of our life. But when this happens, when we become callous to our sin, hardened to our sin, we're believing that Jesus took it but forgetting the shame that he endured. We're in turn shaming the cross that Jesus endured. We're essentially adding to the mockery that Jesus took. And there, there are two extremes of shame. We often talk about shame in the negative light. You know, we understand the negative side of shame. Shaming someone else is wrong. The overbearing weight of shame can often be crippling. But something we need to understand is that shame is not always bad. Uh, we just don't call the good side of shame shame because that's just confusing. Instead, we call it conviction. We call it conviction. But at its core, by definition, shame is feeling bad about something you've done wrong, which is a good thing when it comes to sin. 
There needs to be a level of remorse. We need to grieve our sin. We need to despise our sin. We need to grow to hate our sin. Feeling shame of our sin is a good thing. It reminds us of the cross. It reminds us that the world is broken. It reminds us that we're not the way we should be. If we are not grieved or convicted or shamed or remorseful over our sin, that's a massive indicator in our life that we don't understand the gospel or we have somehow forgotten the gospel. Because the love of Christ in the gospel, it compels us and it reminds us that this world is not about us. You can't love the God and love world, love the world, a calloused heart. It's a big flashing indicator in our life that the love, that our love is tied to the world and it's not tied to God. Brothers and sisters, if we are calloused over our sin, if we are hardened over our sin, we must beware that it's a sign that our hope is tied to something fleeting and it will not last. So yes, being grieved and convicted of our sin is good, but we cannot stay there. We cannot stay there. If we stay there, we're ending the story where we left off, where Jesus was hanging dead on a cross. But as we know, this is not the end of the story. Jesus experienced shame. Jesus despised the shame and Jesus endured the shame. He, he, he stayed on the cross and did not come down. But as we know, the best news is yet to come because Easter is on the horizon. And as we'll see next, more next week in Jesus' exaltation, Jesus was eventually taken off the cross, dead and buried in a tomb. And although he died on the cross and endured the cross, he was not defeated by the cross. No, he was buried in a tomb and he overcame the grave, defeating sin and shame and death. And if we remain in our sin and shame, we've metaphorically speaking kept Jesus on the cross dead. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not dead on the cross. No, Jesus is alive. Jesus is living and active. We have good news. The tomb cannot hold Jesus down. If Jesus is living inside of you, neither can your sin and shame hold you down. I don't care where you are, but that deserves an amen. Because as we'll see next week, when Jesus died on the cross, he began to reverse the curse of sin. He began to recreate and bring light into the world after his darkest hour. Don't miss this. This next verse in verse 38 says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curse of our sin kept us from God. There was a barrier between us and God. But immediately after Jesus' death, God tore away the curtain. He removed the barrier. God tore the curtain from top to bottom, showing its completeness. <laughs> it wasn't partially torn. It was fully torn. We don't have partial access to God. We have full access to God. Our shame is not partially dealt with. No, our shame, it was fully dealt with. I don't know what you're wrestling with today. Maybe you're aware of your sin and you're ashamed of it. Maybe you have a recurring sin in your life. You want it to go away, but it just won't. Maybe you struggle with shame caused by someone else, a spouse, a friend, a relative, a brother or sister, a boss, a roommate. I don't know who it is, where it might, may come from, but hear this. God the, tore the curtain in two from top to bottom so that you could bring your sin and shame to him and lay it at the foot of the cross. The curtain torn in two, completely torn, shows us that the crucifixion of Jesus, his humiliation was not just for eternal salvation, it's for present day hope. We don't, take, if we don't, we don't take, just take our sin to the cross in our own strength and power. No, God tore the curtain so he could come get our sin and he could drag it to the cross for us. Y'all, God is fighting for us. 
We don't have to wait until heaven to be counseled by the great counselor to deal with our sin and shame. We get it now. We get it now, which should leave us amazed and in awe of Jesus. Just like we see the centurion man who witnessed this in verse 39, as we finish out our story, which says in verse 39, and when the centurion who, stu- who stood face, facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last and said, truly this man was the son of God. And so to answer the question of this entire series, who is Jesus, it's clear. Just as Mark said at the very beginning of the book, in the very first verse of this book, Jesus is the Son of God. This leads us to worship, and this leads us to rejoice. And so as we close out our time tonight, I want to draw our attention back to the verse that structured our outline for today. Again, Hebrews 12, 2, it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We've seen all of this today. That in joy, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus knew the shame of the cross was coming, but in joy, he endured it. Jesus endured the cross because he knew the resurrection was coming. Jesus endured the cross because he knew that redemption was coming. Jesus endured the cross in joy because he knew the grave could not hold him down. And knowing all of this, I want to point us to the verse right before Hebrews 12 too. The second half of Hebrews 12, 1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We've seen that Jesus experienced shame. We've seen that Jesus despised the shame. And Jesus endured the shame, died, and rose from the dead so that we could run the race that was set before us. We can endure what's ahead of us because Jesus endured the cross. Jesus stayed on the cross, but he was not defeated by the cross. No, Jesus tore the veil in complete victory. Brothers and sisters, we can run and we can endure and we can have hope and know that God is still working and know that God is still good because Easter is on the horizon. We can run the race before us in joy with hope because as we know, Jesus' exaltation is coming. The tomb was empty. We can run and rejoice (laughs) because we know that Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, we... We have much to rejoice over today. We have much to rejoice that Jesus was humiliated, that Jesus died on a cross to bear the sin of the world, but he did not stay dead on a cross. No, he was buried and he rose again and Jesus was exalted. Father, we have a great hope knowing and trusting that Jesus is living and active and that he is good and that he has not stopped being good and that God is still working today. Father, we love you. We ask for all of this to be, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.